0: Praise be to God, as we gather today and are reminded of that triumphal entry that Jesus took on a donkey's back and how it's Palm Sunday, and as I I confess, this isn't really a particular favorite of mine, as we'll get into it, you might see why, and then it, it does... Bring me joy and excitement because we see why Jesus did what he did. But it's hard because we're like, oh, he just got angry. And we think about, as we gather today, so many social problems, political problems. The the week we had looking at the the attack and and the killing of six and and a pastor's young nine-year-old daughter and, and seeing the timing of it all. It's like, man, we have a lot of problems. And and yet we keep talking about like guns and all these things, but we don't talk about hearts and minds and, and the Creator. And, and and we're we're quickly, even as a church, led to talk politically or socially and try and reform and do these. But it seems here Jesus doesn't do that. He goes right to worship and prayer. Which reminds us yet again. That all of our social and political problems would be set right if we would go and worship Jesus and pray to Jesus. And it's that simple. And it's so wonderful. But yet we hear and we see this picture, which right away kind of puts me into a a place where as a kid, if my parents said, hey, we really need you to clean the house, we're going to go away. And you looked at the mounting pile of dishes in the sink and and the house is a mess and instead of cleaning you're like we should make pancakes so you make pancakes and as as a kid not knowing fully the cooking and the temperature the cook the pancakes aren't cooked all the way through and my dad and mom as they come home it's like you didn't clean the house no I certainly didn't obey but I made you pancakes and they're not even cooked all the way through and the eggs are raw it's great you should enjoy it's like uh I gave you one job like one job and you didn't Not only did you not do it, you made it worse. And you left all the dishes, which maybe you can relate if you have kids and they want to bake things. And it's like, wow, that's a huge labor undertaking and it's more of a mess. And so it's kind of, it puts my heart into this weird emotional state seeing Jesus go, hey, go get the the colt. Because I feel like there's more details here we're missing, right? Like when Mid-State Fair comes, no one just says, oh yeah, here's a spot. You could just use it and park here for free. Like when the... When surely the older brother or maybe the uncle would have like heard, wait a minute, hold on, who's needing? Wait, you realize there's two million people in and around Jerusalem and they're looking for housing and transportation. We're just going to let them use our donkey for free. But they knew it was the Lord. And so the details carry weight when you understand the historical backdrop. And hopefully as we come out of this Palm Sunday, knowing a little bit more of why this Passover was so unique. Because when Jesus got that borrowed cult, they, I mean, even think about the disciples. Surely at this point, at least one of the two would have been like, hey, for, this is great. Like, there's going to be a cult. No big deal. If anyone questions us, we'll just tell him. And he'll be like, sure, go. It's Jesus. But maybe Thomas was the other one. He's like, I doubt it. You know, I doubt there's probably, it's probably going to be like a camel And are we going to go with a camel? He said colt. Like, what are we going to do? You know, so doubting Thomas might have had some doubts. And it's like, dude, Thomas, we've seen him do like Lazarus just rose from the dead a couple days ago. I think we'll have a colt there. I think we'll be good. We don't get those details. It's just super quick. And then before you know it, they get the donkey and they're like, oh, this isn't, I mean, this is like the king of the, this is the king. We got to have like a little bit of kind of honorary support, celebrate. Here's a coat. So they put a coat on the donkey and they're like, we want to celebrate you as king. And everyone's like, oh, Jesus. And they, and because according to Judaistic law, required everyone who came to Passover, they had to spend the night in Jerusalem. So over 2 million people are there seeing, and, and we think we're all cool because we have Airbnb. This was pre Airbnb. Okay. They realized 2 million people are coming to town because we've created this supply and demand, we've we've made this religious. They're fearful they're not going to be able to do Passover, so they have to stay the night here, which means financially we have a lot to gain. So, that, which they they had them there, and then it turned into tent city, tents everywhere, because only a few people were rich enough to have a house in the countryside and in Paso, and then also down in Santa Barbara, right? Like that was pretty high end to have both winery and downtown Santa Barbara. So, so they didn't have a house typically in both. So they'd have a tent. There's a bunch of people. They say approximately two million people were there because you had to kill the lamb within two days and there's about 10 to 20 people that would be able to eat the lamb. So that's how they, numerically, historians have figured out two million people were there. So they stayed and you couldn't stay in the temple. You could stay around it and in the surrounding areas. So we see the Prince of Peace, the person of peace, Jesus coming and as he comes near on the colt walking down with his disciples and the group around him and they're they're cheering and chanting when he drew near to beth page and bethany at the mount that is called olivet he sent two of his disciples they get the colt and they said hey why are you untying him just as jesus said and he's like oh the lord needs him oh of course take the colt go for it so they go and in verse 36, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice in praising God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. We see... The king comes in the name of the Lord. Psalms 113 through 118. It's this Hallel Psalms. It's this chant that would be chanted at the end of the Passover supper, the Feast of Tabernacles. And this particular line was changed from, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was a beatitude to, to address one another to blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they added, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Which... Since you guys were reading your Bible, probably thinking this morning in preparation as we were preparing for worship, you probably were like, "Hey, I've heard that before." The angels said that to the shepherds, "Peace on earth and goodwill t- towards those who God's pleased with." This has been a moment where they kind of change some words and add peace in heaven and the glory of high, in, in glory in the highest, verse thirty-eight, which naturally reminds us of. Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men whom God's favor rests. So we, we see this, this moment where all of a sudden the disciples are praising God and the crowds are joining in and they went and grabbed palms because there's a, there's a revolt and palm branches were on the coins and that was kind of the, the military takeover coup um that happened years earlier and it failed so it's interesting that's why it bothered it's like wait hold on like a guy's on a donkey which is Jesus like the creator God and they're like hey we should put our coats down and remember that thing that failed we should go get palms and do this like palm waving thing and I'm it's just for me it's like I don't I don't know it's it's this but it it, it's also in this sense of desperation of you got to save us. Like we tried and our revolt failed, but maybe you're the king and you got some secret stuff going on. But there's in the backdrop, you just see this angst and this desire for Might to be right, and and I could just hear like machetes being sharpened and knives being sharpened and figuring out like, okay, so if you flank on the left, then we can maybe hide out in here. And is he going to go for Pilate first, or is he going to go for the Caesar? Like, are we going for government or military? Like, who's going to be taken down first? As as he's marching towards Jerusalem, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. They're saying one thing but their heart desires another. They're saying and identifying and proclaiming that he's the king of peace and the person of peace is here, but they're wanting him to bring a military and political revolt. Alfred Edershim, the, the great Hebrew scholar on the life of Jesus, believes that there were repeatedly met by pilgrims coming out of Jerusalem because the word of his coming had already reached there So he's going from from Bethany, which is about two miles away. So for two miles, he's saying the word reached Jerusalem. And out of the two million people there for Passover, just were coming and and touching and yelling and, yay, Jesus is here, and and saying that. And they took the palm branches saying, Hosanna, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord, blesses the King of Israel. And they're saying this, which a week's time, the crowd went from... Blessed is the king of Israel to crucify him. We want you to release a murderer, Barabbas, and kill Jesus. Their heart was was clearly not fully worshiping. Their mouth was saying true words, but their heart was far from God. Hosanna was an anticipatory cry, literally, save or save us. Similarly, we, we, we recognize the phrase, God save the queen. It was, God save us. Our Lord was totally in control. And I could just tell, I, you just think about his emotions of like, I want to save you, but do you, you don't want me to save you. Like you're saying this, but you really don't want it because you don't obey me. You're not worshiping me. You're not praying to me. You're worshiping yourself and you're, and you're trying to earn your own salvation. And, and so the problem of peace is we, we love the idea of it, but we don't, we don't embrace the same solution. We don't look to Jesus for our peace. We wanna create it. We wanna vote it in. We wanna accomplish it. And we're people of doers. I I wrestle with that. And I think part of this is my own conviction is do I worship Jesus? Am I a worshiper? Is this an act of worship or is this a, a work that I'm like, yeah, I'm the pastor, I get to preach. Are you worshiping through your job? Are you worshiping as your parent going, Okay, I get to serve my kids? And this is a labor and I'm endeavoring to worship God and, and show these kids how to worship God through this. Is everything we say and do worship and, and putting God on display. And that's where we see as is Jesus is, is coming down the hill, the west side, looking to the east side, the east gate of the temple, we see the Mount of Olives and in the valley there's the Kidron Valley and that valley, because over the course of Passover, all those lambs that would be slain, that valley, the little creek that runs through there would turn red with blood. They would come off the temple mount. And that's where the eastern gate he entered in to Jerusalem as they're crying for him. So here's the person of peace shows up. Second, the problem of peace is he's in this valley looking at the eastern gate. So that's the view from in the valley, which that's pretty, it's got the olive trees, but that's really kind of the dirt road that looks a lot more like kind of a back road going to Creston, uh, which it is. Like that's when I was in Israel, it was surprising. I was like, we're going to the Holy Land, and it was like, oh, so the central valley. It's like desert, and Creston's like... As Pretty as it gets, and, and you get the hills and it is it 's got a little forest, but it 's very unique how there 's just the minus all the speckle homes in Creston there 's like vineyards and big ranch homes that are nice but there there 's just the old uh, kind of brick homes there, and so Jesus is in this valley and he sees and he 's embracing the emotional reality of what is to come, and it 's this glimpse we see into his heart, and it 's not this this quiet lament cry where it says Jesus wept when Lazarus was dead and his sisters are mourning over his friend who's who's passed and he's about to resurrect him but he's joining them in this grief no this is a this is a outburst of of tears as he goes from being heralded as the king and, there, and some of the people, the Pharisees were like, hey, tell him to be quiet. And he's like, I can't. If I tell him to be quiet, even the stones are going to cry out, which is referencing, hey, the earth is going to shake and proclaim me. And and when I, when I die and rise again at AD 70, they're going to come and destroy Rome. They're going to destroy Jerusalem and the temple. And, and the gold that's in the temple is going to be so hot from the fire, it's going to melt into the cracks of the rock, which aren't like our pavers with... You know, the, the gold will go in there and they'll have to pop up every stone. And so he's like, even the stones are going to cry out. So let him just, just praise me. And then it says in verse 42, Would that you, even you, had known on this day, as he's weeping, the things that make for peace. Jesus is the king of peace. He wants peace. He wants them to see that he's come to bring them peace. But they're refusing and they're going to refuse in a matter of days. Which brings me back again when God told Moses, go, let my people go, let them know they can be free. And Moses went to him and said, hey, we can be free tonight, right now, let's go. And the Israelites were like, I can't, I have to get up at 4 a.m. to start making bricks. I'm a slave. And Moses is like, no, you're not anymore, God's going to save you. And they're like, yeah, one day, but tomorrow I have to go be a slave. One day I'll be free. And he's like, oh my goodness. That's why I don't like Palm Sunday. It's like, what? It's going to happen. I know it happened, but why didn't they just go? And Jesus is like, come on, Jews. I wanted you to help me save the Gentiles, but you just thought you were so cool. God's like, hey, Jews, I'm going to bless the world through you. They're like, I know, I'm awesome. Like, no, I'm God. I'm awesome. That's literally the definition of awesome. I'm worthy of praise. And I've chosen you. We're going to, to, to be the conduit of my blessing. And they're like, cool, you're going to bless us. Ah, no, you're going to be the conduit. You're going to carry the blessing. And they're like, cool, keep blessing us. Actually, we want a king and we're going to go worship other idols, not you anymore. Okay, go be disciplined, but I'm faithful even though you're not, and I'm going to save you. And so Jesus is crying out going, I've ah, pleaded with you, I've tried with you. You just won't receive my love and let it flow through you to others. And so he's lamenting, if you would have known the things of peace, they don't worship God, they worship themselves. They worship their religion, not a relationship with God. And God continues to seek them. His wailing was followed by lamentation in verse 42 through 44, if you, if you even... You had only known on this day that would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you and your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side, dash you on the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will leave, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. They won't leave a stone upon another because you did not know the time of the visitation. This is what's coming. And Jesus knows they're going to have death be their reality and see their kids killed, and every stone's going to be torn up because they're going to light the temple on fire and the gold's going to go in. And Jesus prophesied that. So he's weeping terribly because he doesn't want that for them, but they're going to reject him and receive that. That's what's coming. Do you know Jesus or will he weep over you because he's revealed himself through his creation, through his word, and you've said, Cool, anyways, I'm awesome. I'm going to keep my 401k is always going to be there. I know the dollar's collapsing, I know there's rumors of wars, but man, no, trust in Jesus now. Know that he's the king. And he alone will bring you peace. He alone will give you peace. The person of peace is crying, weeping, praying for peace between men and God. And men continue to run away from God. And God is chasing after them. So here we have Tuesday morning. He comes back. We pick it up in verse 45. And he enters the temple and he begins to drive out those who sold. Who sold saying, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Verse 47, he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. It's the process of peace now. So we see the person of peace, the problem of peace, and now the process of peace. Jesus knows His heart is aching because he knows they've got it so wrong in so many ways, and he is going to set it right and spend the last days he has on this earth holding up in the temple teaching. So often, nowadays, people think Jesus' sermons were like two seconds because we missed so much of the detail, but here we see it was two miles. What do you think he did? He's just like, hey, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. For they shall inherit the kingdom. Like, do you think that's a sermon? No, like the Sermon on the Mount was probably three hours we get condensed. And so much of we get are the sermon in a sentence. And it's like, yeah, Jesus only taught for like t- two minutes. Why are you teaching for 40 minutes, pastor? Well, I'm of the conviction. It was probably three hours, you know, two hour walks. So you should be thankful. 45 minutes is where I try and, you know, <laughs> hold to. But here we see every day he's teaching. Because he, these are the words that have life, as Peter said. Where are we going to go? You have life. These are the words that bring us life. And Jesus goes in. And it was interesting because while the crowds understood who Jesus was with their mouth, they acknowledged him as Lord. And we see it was a prophetic fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9 that that Jesus would come in on a donkey. And we see in Malachi 3.1, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way for me. Then suddenly the Lord, which would be John the Baptist, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. So here we see Malachi being prophesied and fulfilled. So the the point is that God planned everything, and Jesus just executed the plan perfectly. Which the cult, Jesus said, hey, there's a cult. Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah said, hey, there's going to be a cult. Boom, done. He's going to go in the temple. Malachi said that. Jesus goes in the temple. Why? Why is he going in the temple? Earlier, Jesus had this bar mitzvah, this celebration. Parents left to go home, and they're like, oh, where's Jesus? I thought he was with you. And the mom's like, Mary's like, Joseph, you had him. And Joseph's like, no, he said he was going to come to you. And then they find Jesus, and he's like, I was in my dad's house. Where else would I be? So he, he ends, starts there, ends there. Cleanses the temple. He doesn't bump into tables. I think so much of the time you read this and you kind of see Jesus bumping into tables or knocking over a vase. He's flipping over tables, which if you've ever been angry and you want to, I just, I'm like, yes, finally we get to see the, the meek Jesus, which is not weakness, it's power under control. This is the, the the thing that probably you and I have felt this past week and years. And the more you see it, you're like, ah, righteous anger. Like, why is this happening? How are we moving into evil and darkness. And why does it seem to gain ground? I know we're in a spiritual battle, but how do we fight? Oh, it's worship and prayer. And we see here, Jesus is meek. He's power under control. He's always so gentle and accessible by the sinner and the repentant. And he's hard and forceful with the self-righteous. And so he meets the same intensity on the temple that they've been hurting and robbing so many people. He flips their tables over, destroying this economic system they have set up. And this commercial abuse, we see it was set up to have in Leviticus 1 unblemished animals as a sacrifice to point to the sinless Savior, Jesus. The problem is that you you would have to pay a half shekel temple tax and that was it but that was just the beginning because in in Jewish law they added this insanely exorbitant charge where the money changers you'd have to pay a temple tax you have to use the temple money to so you have to exchange your money which then there's all these other fees you get to make money off of and and you think well I'm sure it costs more to buy an animal there than it is to bring your own animal because no one goes to McDonald's anymore. It's 20 bucks at a burger, so you just pack your own PB&J. Like, no big deal. The problem, though, is the chief priest thought of that loophole and they closed it and said, okay, well, you could bring your, your perfect lamb, but we have a little shiv here and we'll just shank it and then all of a sudden it's bleeding. Now it's not perfect anymore. Unfortunate for you, fortunate for us. We're going to mark up the livestock that we have for sale here. And so they would be about 3,000 livestock would be brought in to the temple to be sold for offerings. That's a lot of money when you're marking it up. Especially for poor people that come with a, buy a pigeon for 10 cents and they mark it up to $10 at the temple. They don't have money for that. It's like, oh, you had your pigeon. Well, it's missing a leg. It didn't have, It had both legs two seconds ago. Well, I don't remember that. Now you have to pay $10. And you do the math. So, Jesus walks in, flips over the tables, wreaking havoc and reclaiming, this is my house. This is supposed to be a house of prayer and you've made it a den of robbers. So, what a sight that must have been to see. How would you move a crowd? You've seen some mobs and some riots. and It takes a lot of people and tear gas to move anybody, one God, in the form of a man, clears the temple. Two million people. The Romans didn't come in and interfere. There was no tear gas, no horses, no spears, nothing, which the Romans loved to kill people. They had spears and swords at the ready, and they didn't use anything. They just let Jesus clear the temple because it was God's plan that Jesus perfectly executed. We see this gentle and meek and mild Jesus helping us understand that meekness is not weakness. It's power under control. And now he's bringing in the purpose that his church was intended to be a place for any and all to worship and pray to him and be saved. We see the words at First Kings 8, Solomon is, is crying out after he's saying, God, you're so big, you cannot be contained in a building. But we have this place for you. And we pray that in verse 30, I, that you would listen to the plea of your servant and to your people, Israel, when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven that your dwelling place, and when you hear their cries, you'd forgive them. Jesus' actions are bring us back to the prophetic words in the Old Testament. Isaiah fifty six, seven, it is written, He said to them, My house will be a house of prayer. In verse forty six, in the context of Isaiah fifty-six, it's meaning, My house will be a house of prayer for the Gentiles in this debate, is is the church only for the, the saints and only for the believers, or is it for the unbeliever? We go back to the plan of God saying, I want to bless the whole world through the Jews. I want the believers who know me to represent me well. But here we pray and we worship and then we go and serve and sacrifice as Jesus served and sacrificed by laying his life down. That's the most challenging and beautiful picture and calls us to once again, inviting you into my own wrestling is like, okay, am I worshiping that way? Do my neighbors see me as a worshiper of God? Does my wife, does my kids see me fully devoted, humbly serving them as I worship and serve God? Because First Kings 8, on that day, amidst great celebrating, the, the empty temple received the Ark of the Covenant into the most holy place, I want to pick, paint this picture for you. When the priest withdrew from the holy place after they put the ark in there, a cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the Lord of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Work was over for the priests. There's no work to be done because the Lord is there. After blessing the people, Solomon spread out his hands toward heaven, and he offered this prayer of dedication, which goes from what I shared earlier in verse 30. He says in verse 41 through four forty-three, as for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name. For men will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you. Are we that church? Are we saying, God, you're in heaven, and when people who don't know you pray to you, hear them, hear their prayer, and and forgive them and save them. Are we known by our love that we're that inviting and bringing them to this place? He says, so that all the people of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people, Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. The temple was to be used for the evangelism of the Gentile. How have we strayed? We've not worshiped and prayed. We've not feared God and then been motivated to go and praise God and and pray for the salvation of the Gentile, for our neighbor and invite them in and say, okay, you need to know Jesus. I was just worshiping God. I'm so terrified. He's so loving and gracious to me and saved me. You got to know him. He's so good to you. And it's that that Jesus is weeping because yet they've continued to reject. But one day, the outstretched arm, over and over through the Old Testament, the outstretched arm is the complete pushing God away and running away, but God's outstretched arm. And finally, he stretched out his arm one last time on the cross for you and me and said, it is finished. I'm done stretching my arms out. They're nailed here. The blood is dripping. It's done. There's no more work. There's no more lambs. No more 2 million, no more trying to pile into Jerusalem because they already expanded. Airbnbs and loaning coal, you couldn't h- handle it anymore. Jesus is like, this is not just for this region, it's for the world. And the gospel is going to go to the entire world, all peoples. No one's to be excluded. In Isaiah 56, it's interesting because it talks about the foreigner and the temple. It said, No, let no foreigner who has been who has joined himself to the Lord, say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let not any eunuch complain, I'm a dry tree. No one is to be excluded from God's people by ancestry, the foreigner, or by defect, the eunuch. All will be received if they come in sincerity of heart. It's always been about worship. It doesn't matter. In our day, there's so many people I've talked to, come to church, oh, I don't have enough clothes. I don't have nice enough clothes to come to church. Oh, I... I no, if you come, it doesn't matter what you've done. Oh, I have been in prison, or oh, I, I did this, or I said that, and I, you know, I, I, all these things. And it's like, hey, I, I guarantee, if you would read the Bible, you can't compare with David or Solomon. Like they've done your sins times infinite. Like they have sinned way more. And then Paul's like, yeah, I mean, I know everything better than any of you ever could, and I killed Christians. So. Like, I'm playing the ace. Like, you can't beat that card. Like, I'm pretty sure you haven't killed Christians lately. Lately, right? Like, that's a big deal. And God said, My house was established for both the eunuch who physically have either been something done to them or they chose that lifestyle to live apart from how they were created. They can still come in. And those who are foreigners and don't fit the part, look the part, they're supposed to come in too. Because I'm the God who heals and saves. And they pray to me if it's about your heart change. And only God can transform our heart. So he says in verse 6 and 7, Foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to worship Him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant. That's his promise to deliver Jesus as the substitute, to pay for our sin in our place. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. God has always had his arms stretched out welcoming. It's religion that pushes you out and say, if you do enough, then maybe God will accept it. But God's always said, no, I'm gonna do the work to provide a relationship for you. I'm gonna forgive you. When you do wrong, I'm gonna forgive you and accept you. Come on in, come on in. Bind yourself to me. You're part of my family. I'm gonna accept those sacrifices if it's from a heart that's true. For my house will be called the house of prayer for all nations. That's why Jesus said that. He was saying, my house will be called the house of prayer. And when they did that, they did this like jujitsu Like rabbi talk, where they would quote one verse, but it was inferring the previous verses, it was inferring the context. Unfortunately, when, when we do that, we're like, oh, Jeremiah 20, and we just take that as our own. Like, God's going to get me out of debt. He's going to get me a yacht because he has plans to prosper me. That's my verse. I'm going to put that over. It's like, uh, uh, I want to read the context of what the verse is really about because it it is it does helpful. It's, it applies for us. But the context is pray for the nation because the nation that you're in, if it's following God, then you, you won't suffer and die. But if the nation is not following God, well, it's going to be hard for you. So we better pray for our nation and pray for our leaders, which guides us, but it's not something just for, like we need to be reminded the house of the Lord is for prayer and worship to Him. He's our King. He's our Lord. He's our ruler. Not looking to the ways of men. Not looking for, for appeasing us by making a little bit more money Off the backs of the poor. So God has always been about justice and righteousness. And we see in Isaiah 56, he comes in and says, No, my house was supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've been stealing from the poor and the widow, and you're supposed to be caring for the orphan and the widow. You're supposed to be caring for those in need, not making money off of them. So Jesus doesn't go to the White House, he doesn't go to Sacramento, he goes to the church. Which, that's why people have been telling them, like, I don't know if I like this Sunday. Like, that's pretty hard. to I, I'd rather him go fix the stuff out there that's broken. He's like, no, I want to fix your heart. Okay, Lord, what's wrong now? You know, it's like, oh, you wanted me to clean the house? But I made you pancakes. They're a little doughy. Like, no, I wanted you to do one thing, and you didn't do it. I wanted you to pray and worship. But I read my Bible. I know. But do you... The Jews read the Bible. They know it more than we do. They have the whole Testament memorized, most of it. But they chose to rob and steal instead of pray and praise and, and create space. They had, they had a space for women in the outer courts. So they had a space for Gentiles. And then they had the Jews-only section. And telling my daughter about that, she lost her mind. She was like, let me at him. Why would we do that? I was like, I know. That would be really hard for me to take you to the synagogue and leave you in the women-only section. I'm sure you'd show up in the Gentile section with me, and we'd get kicked out. Like, for sure, that would be a reality. But thankfully, Jesus comes in, and that's why he flipped over the tables. He's like, this is not what it was ever intended to be. You guys had multiple scriptures isaiah solomon they're telling you my heart was for the world for the gentiles through you but you stopped my love because you thought you were better we hear paul remind us of this in ephesians 2 therefore remember that formerly you who were gentiles by birth were called the uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision they made themselves better than you the Jews, remember that at the time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God. Without God, you have no hope. Boom, plain, simple. But he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2:11 through 13. Jesus overthrew the tables, drove out... The thieves to bring back honor to his father's name and two, to introduce and remind them salvation is for the sinner, not for the self-righteous. So we see this meekness, this power under control is used to bring back right understanding of how we're saved and how we live as followers of God. We see in Jeremiah seven eleven, but you have made it a den of robbers, verse 46. This is a line from Jeremiah's temple speech that was a warning to the people of Israel who had embraced wickedness as a way of life. But imagine that their being Israelites and possessing the temple would keep them safe. Basically, they could live however they wanted to live as long as they showed up at church in their suits and had big buildings and filled them with people. They were good. As long as they got to church on Sunday, they'd be fine. It doesn't matter what happens Saturday night or early Sunday morning. As long as they were in church every Sunday, they'd be good. We thankfully we have a lot more worshipful culture in America. It's not a Sunday or Easter, Christmas only. Where no, we, we actually that hits home. It's like, hey, are we worshiping? Or are when we show up here? Is it a family gathering? Because when I come home, like. It was a lot cooler when my kids were younger, but they still acknowledge that I'm there, right? Like when they were younger, they were like, Yeah, I was like, This is awesome. And then all of a sudden, it changed. I'm like, What? I didn't change. I mean, I might have got older, but I'm still your dad. Don't get the same welcome. <laughs> but is that how we, breed, we, we greet each other here? Are we family? We're like, Oh, you, we missed you. Where were you the last couple of weeks? That's what the house of the Lord is supposed to be. Worshiping together, praying and praising God for who he is and what he's doing in our lives. That's why Jesus flipped the tables over. We're not supposed to steal from each other and get gain. No, it's for the word of the Lord to be praised. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in the deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It's a heart transformation. It's not being in a place. So we see Jesus acquires the temple to correct false teaching. And he does it forcefully. And we see when he tosses the the tables over, physically forcing people out, spending the rest of the last week teaching. And all the teachers were like, how can we kill him? How can we trap him? Because everything he said was undoing everything that they set up their religion by. You don't need to do this. You don't need to do this. You don't need to do this. No, that was how we control them through fear and financial gain. Satan always is in the religion. He's always in the church controlling through fear and finances. It's the same thing today. And then they're like, oh, well, shoot, the culture's going away. How do we kind of manipulate God's word? You don't. You let the culture go where it's going to go. As Jesus said, that's where it's going to go. And Paul said, there's going to be terrible times in the end days. People will be lovers of themselves, not God, lovers of money. That's where we're at. Everyone's talking about money and the dollar changing and the world's going all this way and there's rumors of wars and there's wars. Jesus said exactly where we are. Are we going to worship and pray to him? Or are we going to look to the ways of the world? No. We're going to come to church and be the church and be praying and look to him to heal us when we're sick. Look for him to bring us hope when we're hopeless and peace. And that's why he's the king of peace. And so Jesus succeeds the temple. He says, look, this building and all of its fanciness and gold, it's all going to be destroyed in AD 70. But I am going to live you destroy me and I'll, I'll build it again, right? You destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. You destroy this body, I'll rebuild it. Meaning you're the temple of God now. God's in you. So when we scatter in a minute, we're to go and bring the hope of the gospel. And only in Jesus' name are we healed. Only in Jesus' name are we saved eternally. Jesus is the cornerstone the builders rejected. The builders were building a religious system without Christ, and we're still guilty of, of seeing it and being influenced by it today if we're not careful. That's why it's so important to see the Old Testament, how God planned it, and Jesus brings it out and says, no, this is how it's always supposed to have been. Let's, let's correct it right now. John explains the Word was made flesh and lived among us, dwelling among us, showing us here's how to endure Here's how to pay taxes, even though you might not agree where your taxes are being spent. Here's how to suffer well. Here's how to serve and glorify God. Here's how to have power under control. And when there's opportunity, be angry, but righteously angry. Not just blasting and and posting crazy things, but man, when Jesus was on the cross, he showed us, here's what to do. Father, forgive them. They know not what they've done. They're in sin. They're blinded by sin. There's no other way the world knows how to live until God gets a hold of their heart. And he's chosen you to be a light, to be a conduit of his love, that his love would flow through you to others around you. And that's why Jesus is like, I gotta clean up the church. I gotta clean up the last thing I do. I'm gonna correct the teaching. So when I leave, the church will be built with me as the head and them as the body. We see Paul wanted us to see this, that we're members of the heavenly temple by Virtue of the importance of Christ. Christ is the head, and we're being built together, becoming a dwelling place of God by His Spirit in Ephesians 2. In Revelation 21.3, we see, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them. And be their God. Furthermore, I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God, Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Again, it's seeing and hearing. Do we see Jesus for who He truly is, not what we want Him to be? Not grabbing palm branches or throwing coats out on a little colt, and oh man, I can't wait to I got my knife here. It's all nice and sharp. Where are we? No. Are we on our knees and our hands and praying and pleading? God, forgive me. I'm a wretched and horrible sinner. Help me love my wife and my kids and be an example to my neighbor and help me share the hope of the gospel while there's still time. Because in heaven, there is no temple. It's God. It says, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light. And the lamb is its lamp. Lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Jesus, the Messiah, is our Savior. Jesus is everything. Everything the temple had pointing to Jesus, the splendor, the glory, the Holy of Holies, the separation. No, it was, you're not, you can't be in unless you're holy. And the only way to be holy is if God is in you. See, they thought they could get into the Holy of Holies once a year By taking a little bath or a shower, we take showers like for 10 minutes a day. It still doesn't get, we still know we're sinful. We still know there's brokenness, there's hurt, there's pain that no amount of soap or fancy shampoos can get or electric toothbrushes. We still feel the grime and the grit and it's still there. It's Jesus alone. It's his presence, the presence of God. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Colossians 2, 9. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, Hebrews 1. He himself is our only access to God. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. He is our atoning sacrifice. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that's the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds we've been healed, 1 Peter 2, 24, He is our mediator. He stands between us and the Father. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. It enters in the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. That's in the Holy of Holies. Only those who are holy could enter the presence, but Jesus is there where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. He's become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He's our standing, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is everything. So when he came on the colt, weeping out of the valley, coming up into the temple mount, going to the temple, checking out the work that he had to do the next day, And the amount of teaching and correcting he'd have to do, knowing as he retreated every night back to the Mount of Olives, one last night when he took Passover, the final cup was meant for us, God's wrath. But that was the cup that he said, Lord, if this cup could pass from me, that'd be really great. God said, nope, it's my plan. And you've executed it perfectly until now. And Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. And he took the cup of God's wrath on him. And that's why we celebrate every Sunday as a family, that it, he took our place. He took God's wrath. And so as we take communion that's intended for those who believe Jesus is everything, and, and, and now is the time to, to repent and turn back and say, okay, God, help me refocus and look to you again. Help me listen more clearly that I might pray and then go and proclaim jesus name to the gentiles to those who've yet to believe they're going to believe they just need someone to tell them who's going to tell them if you don't go and tell them so let's pray now as we take communion and i'll I'll come up and wrap us up but i'm going to give you a minute or two to pray how the holy spirit might be reminding you or revealing to you the person he's placed in your life that you have to share the good news with and i'll close this in a minute